This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance uh, podcast. Boy, I think it's number 40. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, with us uh, in Sri Lanka is Omar Khan. Hi, Omar. Hi there. Uh, in New York, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi. Um, in Sweden, uh, Johan Edebo. Hey, Good Johan. Evening, I think. And uh, in uh, Toronto, Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Hey, good morning. So um, I, I was really happy that we could coordinate this and, and get Omar on um, because I had read his, his piece and Cesspool of Insanity and then started reading other things. Uh, and, and fortunately, we got in touch with each other and um, we could make this happen. So, Omar, you want to sort of start with a little bit on, um, on where we are with uh, COVID and, and the pandemic? Sure. And uh, I'll um, try and give a little of the Sri Lankan texture to it as well, just to add that into the mix. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, um, you know, you asked me where I was from, and I mentioned that uh, I've kind of been a peripatetic, inadvertent globalist, if you will, uh, basically hanging on to my parents' coattails. They were diplomats. And so I've been gallivanting all over the place. Uh, first came to Sri Lanka in 93, and uh, between Singapore, Dubai, and here, was here for much of their civil war. Um, and you know why we call them civil wars. Most of them are highly uncivil, as this one was. Mm. And um, shortly after 9-11, went back to the States. And then after the Easter bombings, which took place here in um, a year back, the year before uh, COVID hit, this brought me back. Uh, and so I never expected to be here for a lengthy period of time. And then when COVID came knocking, we decided to stay. Uh, only to say that Sri Lanka initially engaged in a curfew um, that was the, probably one of the most draconian on the planet. It was two months, 24 hours, uh, and there was virtually no exception. And uh, everything was shut down. And at that time, Sri Lanka had in the vicinity of maybe lower than 90 cases maybe 10 deaths. And I kept wondering which curve we were waiting to flatten. Uh, and I, I, I started writing and saying that you're supposed to wait till it starts going up. And then if you want to flatten the curve for a few weeks, as per the theory, and several years later, we're still waiting for that fortnight to elapse. <clears throat> That's yeah. when you do it. You don't do it when nothing is happening. And indeed, what happened is what was predicted, that when they finally released that, it came knocking again, as commentator Alex Berenson says, virus gonna virus. And <laughs> indeed, uh, indeed, it had. On the plus side, over the summer, Sri Lanka, talking summer 2020, and into the fall, calmed down, pulled back, went out of lockdown and returned to normal life, perhaps ahead of much of the world, 
exempting Sweden, perhaps, exempting Belarus, perhaps, exempting a few other um, jurisdictions. And so when people would contact me from the U.S. and say, um, when do you think restaurants will open where you are? And I had to tell them the bad news that they've been open for a very long time. Good news for us. Yet somewhere underneath that, there was still an allergy to any kind of uptick. I think many of us have talked about the case-demic being more profound than the pandemic, the PCR test-led illusion uh, that basically has overthrown all medical common sense, which up until 2020 meant a case is somebody with a symptom. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, has been now... Uh, chased away. And I think Sri Lanka had it so good that recently when India, the optics in India became very difficult. And I don't say that there's nothing difficult on the ground in India, but the hysteria is not merited in terms of various things. And we can talk about that. Sri Lanka allowed a lot of Indians to come through Sri Lanka in order to uh, transit to other places. And that sort of opened the uh, open Pandora's box. And so currently we've just been shut down for two weeks after Sri Lanka had stayed away from that uh, for almost, uh, for almost, well, nine to 10 months. And that's, but just to give you a perspective, Sri Lanka still has about 50 deaths per million compared to India's, say, maybe 140, 145. I, I mean, I'm not being exact, but the UK having 1,900 uh, per million, the US having 1,700 per million, parts of Europe having about 1,700 per million, even Germany having just under 1,000, about nine something, 900 something per million. So I do think it's much ado about nothing, but for the next two weeks, I'll be making that argument for a while. My quick view on the rest of the world is that we are coming into a collision between increasing data that tells us that we've been lied to energetically, persistently, and consistently, and the followers of the Covidian religion to whom any kind of data or reality uh, are irrelevant. Um, and I can pause there if you like and uh, reply to or we can pick up any strands or whatever you wish. Great. No, it's it is interesting. I mean, Johan, I think it was last time we did a podcast, said something and it it um, stuck with me that um, if if nobody was told there was a pandemic, nobody would know there was a pandemic. Uh, there's no visible sign of anything being out of the ordinary. There are no visibly sick people um, on every block. And in Norway, certainly, um, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody uh, who, who knows uh, somebody who got sick. I mean, you know, it's entirely now, the government policy is entirely... Um, based on on test results and on models, on predictive models, uh, which have all since the beginning of this thing been wildly inaccurate and and wildly exaggerated. 
So um, and the, and the, you know, there's the restrictions still apply here in Norway, although they've been um, lessened to some degree. But I still can't drive to Sweden, for example. Uh, so yeah, it's it's extraordinary, and I think that it, it's. I'm glad you mentioned India because one of the points you made in your article uh, was the numbers. Again, if you read the sort of lurid, fear mongering headlines from India, it seems as though you would think you know twenty percent of the population uh, were deathly ill. Mm-hmm. But but it's not true. It's actually, you know, more people die of dysentery every week in India. And uh, and you find this throughout the throughout the the, the planet that that um, the numbers don't sync up with um, with the, right. the sort of headlines and and um, and and certainly with the policy. Uh, yeah, Johan. Yeah, I just wanted to say it's it's great to have you here, Omar. Uh, I appreciated your your writing. I read some of it, and I think you you summarize things in a in a very clear and accessible manner. A very a huge huge bit of information in a in a, in a confined space in a concise manner. But I was just going to ask you about your general impression of the 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 media situation where you live right now I, how is the situation described if you would just summarize it's very you know, it's a great question um on the one hand um i'm often told by people that i've been the only voice uh, out here uh, yelling about this but on the other hand i've been asked to consult with the college of physicians the COVID task force, and they don't listen very well often, but uh, at least I've been invited to do so. Um, And um, I get to write fairly incendiary pieces without being muzzled. Uh, No one's knocked on the door. I mean, I don't say anything seditious in them, Uh, but I have to say that um, there is less overt censorship than you would think, this being a third world developing uh, country with a heavy handed Uh, leadership. And one of the shocking things has been that sort of the liberal zones, um, as we've understood them, have been so antagonistic to hearing views. I mean, when the great Barrington people can be muzzled, when Martin Koldorf sitting with the Florida's governor is not allowed to say not everybody can be vaccinated before YouTube decides that's something we need here. So, The short answer is I don't hear a lot of uh, dissenting views. There is a sort of orthodoxy. On the other hand, here I'm not sure that that's suppression rather than people not wanting to come out. I, at least to somebody here, um, have been given fairly wide latitude. Um, But that's all I would say. I mean... And there's a lot of hard-hitting criticism of the government's other policies, their economic policies, um, some of the uh, unnecessary problems they cause uh, for themselves. So that's encouraging. But hey, even the New York Times discovered there's no outdoor transmission recently. Right. right. Well, one of the things that, that I found over the last year extraordinary throughout the, the, the media um, from the beginning has been has been 
you know, the numerous contradictions. Uh, you can go to the CDC webpage and and their numbers will contradict, you know, their other numbers. Um, page one contradicts page three. Uh, all the numbers, all the statistics, all of the death counts from from uh, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and then all these tracking organizations and um, global health, you know, organizations, they all contradict each other. Nobody's entirely clear um, uh, what what numbers mean, but there is always a constant sort of flaming of, of the hysteria, fanning of the hysteria. And uh, certainly in the United States, my sense is, and a lot of places are opening up now in the United States. Um, Los Angeles, I'm told now, is is quite open compared to what it was a few weeks ago. Uh, but but the the event, the sort of COVID event, the new normal, the idea of social distancing and and distance learning for for schools and um, wearing a mask everywhere, all of these things are. Are, have been internalized. They're, they're suddenly a part of the culture. There's a whole new vocabulary attached to this stuff. Uh, and, and, and people have, I was on social media the other day and, and it was somebody's birthday. And uh, in the thread, the guy said, oh, happy birthday, so-and-so, you know, when's the vax party? And I thought this is this kind of cavalier flippancy based on this assumption that, you know, everything the government and, the, and these health organizations have told you is true is 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 what I find most disturbing at this point, because I I think and we go around about this all the time. But but, you know, how many people actually how many people actually believe the master narrative and is it a majority that disbelieve it? There have been a lot of protests everywhere and um, sometimes very significant numbers like like in England. But I still think by and large, the majority of populations, at least in the West, uh, believe a significant part of the official narrative. And and uh, that may be crumbling to some degree that that um, belief in in you know, the vaccines and, and Anthony Fauci and all of these avatars for, uh, you know, global well-being. But but I don't know. Uh, it, it is, as I say, you know, here in Norway, there are still restrictions. Most people go to the market every day wearing masks. And um, and yet Norway has almost nobody sick at this. I mean, literally nobody is sick. And um, the only people that are getting sick are people that have been denied regular health care at hospitals that are still all geared up for um, some imaginary wave of uh, COVID patients. Uh, they've been prepared for those COVID patients for six months and they've never materialized. So um, the, 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 the other thing is that there, is, there seems to be no clear idea uh, from even the people who are, are full believers in, in, in the hysteria, no clear idea of what, um, what this portends or, or, or what the political implications of it are. Um, or I've, you know, we talked last week a little bit about people who are highly skeptical of the story, but go and get vaccinated anyway. Um, 
and and I find uh, this vagueness and also every single government page I have read with with um, the health advisories that they issue are are astoundingly unclear. They're remarkably vague. And and I find that uh, probably meaningful in a way that I haven't fully grasped yet. But um there, there is this this vagueness to the entire year, actually. Anyway, um, Corey, you want to say something? Mm, I guess just that everything is going according to plan. I mean, from the beginning, and Klaus Schwab makes this clear in his book, actually called COVID-19, The Great Reset. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> get any more clear than that. And um, I'm, I am shocked by how many people for a virus with the survival infection rate of almost 100% would, I'm I'm shocked at how many people would choose to put in an experimental vaccine into their body for something that they will um, have, you know, you have a bigger chance of getting hit by lightning than you do of dying from the coronavirus. So it is astounding. Um, yesterday in Ontario, they suspended that AstraZeneca vaccine again for the blood clotting causing deaths. And um, when I was in Toronto yesterday, I mean, there was hundreds of people lined up at different um, facilities that were giving out the vaccines. I saw people lined up around blocks and blocks. And then in other parts, almost right, right beside those lines, you'd see tent cities set up you know, people, homeless people everywhere in tents and there's no people, everything's closed, everything shut, is shut down. Um, as designed, the stores, all small businesses being shut down for good, um, exactly what was supposed to happen. That's all part of the Great Reset and a bricks and mortar, the end of mom and pop, right? The end of small business. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the remote learning last week on May 5th, the unions are fine. There's finally uh, um, unions. What's the headline here? May 5th. Ontario Teachers Union slam province for considering permanent online learning option, right? And then it goes into how from kindergarten to grade 12, um, this permanent school option means that kids will never step set in a real, you know, school. It'll, it'll all be virtual, all online. So anyway, they're at least pretending that they just found out about this or figured it out when myself and others have been talking about this for at least two years now, I think over two years. So that's, it's all happening, you know, and by the time people um, figure out um, that this has been, you know, a massive global psyop, all the jobs will be gone. It's all being turned into automation right now over the past year you know it's just accelerating everything is absolutely accelerating this whole new great reset and that's why you see the markets the metal markets and that have just gone insane right because this is all happening while people are um hypnotized by 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 all this mask wearing and and vaccinations and all the rest of it. I mean, it's stunning and it would be more fascinating if it wasn't so, if it wasn't real, if it wasn't so dangerous going forward. Um, Canada is looking um, in the past week, there's a lot of discussion. Um, Trudeau, yes, it's very likely travelers will need vaccine passports. I mean, every single thing that people brushed off and tried to pretend, you know, tried to pretend it's just you know, quote unquote, conspiracy theorists, you know, they're all saying all this stuff. It's not true. Everything is is unfolding really quickly and being put into place. 
And as we know, these things are not going to be lifted later. They're not. Right. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's insane. And it's just really hard to believe. It's hard to watch. It's hard to believe that, like you said, no one's even sick and this is happening. I mean, since when in a global pandemic do hundreds of thousands of nurses get laid off? Right, right. <laughs> No, it is. It's breathtaking. I'm look, you know, I begin my conversations with people and I try to be um, very careful and and kind of diplomatic. And um, I feel out the situation as I go along. But I always begin with you do realize that the survival rate for for covid is extraordinarily high. I mean, you know, for children, they have a, a higher chance of of dying in an auto accident on the way to school than they do from COVID. Uh, and, and yet this somehow seems not to have made a dent in, in the collective attitude toward, at least in the West, um, the collective attitude toward lockdowns and distancing, all these restrictions, vaccine passports, um, there just is a, a passive willingness to go along with it. Uh, maybe it's the desire, a, a sort of de delusion, but a, a belief that they just, you know, in, in the, well, it will soon all return to normal. It'll all be over. We just want it to be over with soon. And, you know, the, the more quickly that happens, the better. So we'll just go along with everything. Don't make waves and, and, um, uh, you know, the old, our old life will return. And of course it's likely that that will happen. I, the reset thing, and maybe somebody else can jump in here, but because I think that you're right, everything you say is right, Corey. Um, but I also think a lot of it is doomed to fail. I mean, there is enough skepticism and the narrative has eroded enough in enough places uh for for this to not work as seamlessly as as maybe you know klaus schwab and his his minions uh think that it will or should but but perhaps i'm i'm wrong about that i don't know i do know that it's being linked already to climate activism you yeah. know that that yeah. that we're seeing the reappearance of greta and the reappearance of the green new deal and all of these um, and it's somehow tied into and and I see headlines every day's articles about um, pollution is down all, you know, biodiversity is is rebounding in all these places because of the lockdown that it's been so good for the planet. Um, and it, which is just, you know, nonsense. But but that's what they're hammering. They that's yeah. what the governments are hammering away at anyway. Um Anyone else here? Sorry. Well, I wait, but I had a comment, but whenever. No, Omar, please. Um, <laughs> I have a, I, have a <clears throat> I think that was a very uh, terrifying, succinct, and yet accurate uh, summary of the Great uh, Reset and how this has sort of been dismantled right in front of us. Funnily um, enough, uh, my next uh, article, which should be up tomorrow, is called Alarmism hmm. and Therapeutic Nihilism. Hmm. <laughs> uh, 
COVID's toxic bedfellows. Um, and the uh, alarmism, I, I don't have to explain, the therapeutic nihilism came from listening to testimony uh, from, a, uh, from Dr. McCullough from Baylor uh, in Dallas, and you may have seen it, and he was saying that the other thing nobody mentions is that this disease is treatable. The right. one there is an overwhelming recovery, the natural immunity that very few people, um, you know, die from it, an overwhelming number recover. But of those who get infected, he's he's been one of the people. He said there's nobody on the White House task force who's ever treated a COVID patient. And I and my colleagues do that every day. Why don't we have a task force uh, compiled of people who have treated, successfully treated COVID patients? He said, I've only lost two. And he said, that's been using a combination of HCQ, ivermectin, vitamin D, zinc. And he said that when I first spoke about these things, I discovered there were 50,000 peer reviewed articles on COVID, only two on treatment. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he said, this is medical malpractice because he said, if you already have a disease that so few people die from, and then he said, we've proven 85% of those could be saved from hospitalization or death, Mm. then we would have this eliminated. And uh, the article goes and talks about why they had to muzzle people like him so the vaccine mania could build up because of course these genetic uh, experimental treatments posing as vaccines, these gene manipulation uh, therapies um, so-called are only on emergency authorization as we know, assuming nothing else is available. Which, But of course, if ivermectin or any of these people, if FDA or others made allowance for the fact that they work and do what all the overwhelming number of trials say, then the whole rotting edifice of emergency authorization would come thudding down. And of course that can't be allowed to happen, Hmm. Um, you know, by the power brokers. So I just wanted to flag that and I will send, I send you all a link to that um, piece, but that article is really about exactly what um, we just heard I've listed some of these things and said, give us a benign explanation for any of these. Mm-hmm. For the slew of insane things that are anti-rational, anti-data, anti-factual, anti-human, disproportionate. If you say it's not conspiracy, is that wonderful old saw that never, um, never, as- never ascribed to malice what you can explain through stupidity? But I've said that stupidity becomes so wantonly oblivious, you have to begin to ask whether anybody is capable of that degree uh, of insanity uh, without an agenda. So this article anyway, tries to go through exactly a similar litany and says, give a benign explanation for why we have these stupid cloth things stuck here, why we're still fantasizing about asymptomatic transmission when 10 million people in Wuhan couldn't find um, yeah. of it and so on and so on. So well, anyway. yeah, I mean, as you know, you ask what everybody in Texas should have dropped dead by now. Right. And, and, but this is just no ignored. These things are ignored. Um, Corey. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just think that was a really important point that Omar brought up about how these, um, I shouldn't use the word vaccinations or vaccines or experimental injections are being put out, you know, through these emergency authorizations, right? And so, especially it's so um, bothersome and concerning and um, grotesque, the new focus now on children, getting all the children vaccinated through this emergency authorization. But we know with children, there, especially with children, there is no emergency, right? And so th this, is, um, this is criminal, um, you know, that the authorization has been given in this way. And people should, um, you know, question that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy because that's how, um, again, you know, going forward, this is all about the foundation of biotech. If you look at Chatham House, we had that, uh, I think we discussed a few weeks ago, that clip from in, into 2060, ask your doctor about gene editing your baby, right? This is the foundation <laughs> going forward of biotech. And that's why you see right now so much money being poured into biotech, right? This is the, we have to start testing on people to be able to move forward with that. And so anyway, the thing about the kids and, you know, and then all the subsequent propaganda to get people afraid to leverage that fear and panic to try to um, coerce parents into vaccinating their children under this emergency authorization. I mean, at this point, it's so clear that governments do no longer represent citizens at all, right? They represent um, the corporations that they're in bed with. It's one in the same, right? And um, yeah, I could just go on and on about that, like just how, how disgusting this is. And again, my heart just breaks for children that can't make this decision for themselves. A lot of children will be given this vaccine because their parents have decided by listening to the news, right, um, you know, quote unquote news that that's that they should do that. Well, you know, the one of the things that that um, should be noted as well has been the extraordinary uptick in censorship um, on Facebook and, and uh, Twitter and all of these these platforms uh you know they they just remove dissenting opinion and and people are not outraged by this uh and there is such an encouragement and of course they also the you know the media is now the 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 campaign for vaccination uh is utilizing celebrities you know daily new ones appear and um, these these very slick and sophisticated and expensive marketing campaigns to sell people on the idea of vaccination. And look, this is, you know, Western populations are extraordinarily indoctrinated already and, and really primed to um, to be receptive to that stuff. And and the censorship has been in many ways um, disturbingly effective. Active, I think, and and that's a whole perhaps separate topic. But Hiroyuki, I think that the whole thing is really uh, uh, it, it's a testament of the fact that the uh, the system is uh, there's no solutions uh, in the system for the people. It's really really a solid system of exploitation and subjugation. Uh, we see those contradictions, and people can look them up. We can make long lists of um, things that are wrong with what's going on. And those things 
don't culminate into positive change for the people. They evoke fear among the people and the fear would um, uh, bring about dependence uh, for the authority. And um, uh, you have uh, destabilized population, divided population, and those things um, uh, bring about um, draconian tools, uh, censorship and um, uh, surveillance and all those things. And the divisions, they would activate corporate politics. We have people talking about Trump this or that. Um, yeah, yeah. So these things are really, really, they, they are all um, uh, uh, funneled into uh, uh, turbocharging the uh, system. Um, that's how it's made. And uh, we're seeing uh, the mechanism uh, very clearly. And um, uh, it would be good if we could explain those things and um, talk about uh, how it should be instead of uh, how it's uh, ha how it has been. Yeah, I mean the the censorship is has has been startling to me, and I mean Omar's piece. The, I read it originally on Medium, and when I went back to it, I sent the link out, the link out to a number of people, and they all wrote back saying, "Wait, it's been removed." Um, very quickly and uh so many people have been deplatformed um sort of disappeared from social media you know suspended for x amount of time and so forth dissenting voices are targeted they're they're, they're like being um described almost as enemies of the state and and um as dangerous i mean one of the funny things is if you go on twitter and you link to an article by Corey or or Omar, or me, or Hiroyuki, uh, before you can get to the, the, the article, a thing comes up, a page comes up and says, beware, this article could be dangerous. <laughs> you know, and I think it's so interesting they use the word dangerous. Uh, and, and because there is a kind of strange moral crusade that is going on here. Uh, and and that's part of the appeal to to, to you know to this this encouragement to conformity in people and 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 this group think because you can point out to people the contradictions the, the vaccine doesn't make you immune the vaccine apparently so they claim it could I mean this is all hogwash but you know does not prevent transmission then why the hell is there this crusade this mania to get everybody vaccinated. Um, Vaccine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say what? As you know, those aren't even vaccines, two of them. They're experimental gene therapy. They're symptom suppressants. They're right. prophylactic posing as vaccines. Right. So even calling them vaccines is kind of magical thinking. Right. And the two <laughs> vaccines are on the ropes at the moment. Uh, one, the AstraZeneca Ontario report, Johnson & Johnson uh, having its... Uh, own woes, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, so then we're down to the two symptom suppressors, as well as I suppose Sputnik and Sinopharm, which is what Sri Lanka has uh, been relegated to. Um, 
but those might be safer because they might have nothing toxic in them. If they don't help you, they might not hurt you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, give me the placebo, please. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Johan, you have anything? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and and, and a, a remarkable thing about what you're discussing is that the censorship here is, is almost entirely corporate or it's mainly corporate and it's not by, by governmental decree it's kind of almost organically emerging in these corporate media structures I was also thinking that here we're sitting at almost equidistant positions on the on the globe we, we have this little empire upon which the, the sun doesn't really set and yet the, the media experience we're describing, it's almost identical. So, so the local culture and local media, it, it's evidently not dominant in any of our locations. Uh, and the, the narratives and the information transmission is, is almost entirely corporate in, in, a, in a global sense. So I, I had a, another question to Omar relating to this. Uh, and do you, do you think there are any, any local forms of specifically cultural resistance in your context uh, are there for instance how do the, the religious communities react to the situation and what do what do artists of every sort say yeah it, it's very interesting i think the people um when the moment you give them I mean, i've seen this everywhere the moment you allow people a chance to flex their autonomy they tend to uh, I saw hysterical reports uh, when they saw pictures in Hyde Park, some woman saying, where are the police? How can these people? It's like they're just living. They've been allowed to live, get off it. I think that here, people will try Ayurvedic treatments. Mm. Uh, they will try other aspects. Um, they, you know, I mean, keep in mind, here in Sri Lanka, we are panicked over 870 total deaths. Yeah. 12,000 people die in Sri Lanka every month. <laughs> of, okay. uh, just as a sense of perspective. And that's been the media. I mean, these, this is not a group of people. They've lived through civil wars. They, they, they deal with third world issues. And one of the reasons I believe Asia and Africa have gotten off so lightly is bad hygiene. Because um, the immune systems are much more robust. Right. They haven't been infantilized and they haven't been, uh, you know, dosed into uh, docility. And here, my worry is that now by being locked up and locked away, that natural immunity uh, will, you know, get eroded. And so I suppose I would say that here it's been the media hysteria and wanting to comply that has overridden the cultural setting which otherwise has been able to take tsunamis and civil wars and all kinds of ravages with equanimity and rebound and show resilience. And that's really, I think, the worry is that this toxic media brew is invading and helping to undermine some of the cultural antibodies that have been present in a lot of cultures as we all sort of give our judgment away and wait to be told by celebrity A, celebrity B, station um, Z, what, who to be and what to think. 
Uh, I was in correspondence with a lady called Sinead Murphy, who is a professor at um, Newcastle. And she said, you know, we are partially regretting the loss of that which we had already started to lose. Mm. Yeah. And that made us such, um, such easy fodder. Well, it's it's interesting that that um, the media in the United States and and the U.S. in some respects, the U.S. and the U.K. are are almost outliers in, in a certain sense. But but the media in the U.S. the only rational commentary has been from the right wing. Um, the liberals have been the most enthusiastic supporters of, of vaccination mandates, coercive vaccination, vaccination passports, social distancing, lockdowns, extending the lockdowns. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic about the sort of liberal enthusiasm for and support for uh, the lockdowns you know, extending indefinitely into the future because, uh, you know, the third wave never materialized, but there is a danger of the fourth wave. Uh, this will go on, you know, um, ad infinitum. I mean, it, it, it is a lot of people, the, 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 the more affluent, that affluent white liberal progressive Biden supporting um, demographic uh, they're very, they've been very comfortable with this lockdown. It really hasn't disrupted their lives all that much. Yeah. Um, they were already living um, largely in their very comfortable houses and, and didn't go out that much anyway. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you see, you see this strange, I mean, we've talked about this before, this strange, almost trance like state that, that um, the population at large um seems to be in and and uh, you know in norway um this is the ultimate nanny culture anyway uh it's it's a it's a very um emasculated society i've been noticing this increasingly i mean it's you, you know they they pass laws to reduce salt on corn chips and frozen pizza and things and you have, you're not allowed to sell most tobacco products you can't import any tobacco products um and and this started about 30 years ago uh when labor was in power here and and was seen as a sign of great progress um and and concern for the populace but it has not turned out that way it has turned into a, a strangely suffocating cultural climate here without without any sort of counterculture whatsoever um and and the arts are just dead and and the arts in the united states are are all but dead too um anyway um corey well, you can add on to that too um, about the fourth, the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution that's opened in Norway. Um, they announced that in 2019. So that's called Rev Ocean. And um, that's working in tandem with the World Economic Forum and all the corporations within that um, coalition, that entity. And they're developing the ocean data platform for deep sea mining. So basically, um, it's called the Blue Economy, which is basically. <laughs> well, we will mine now the oceans to save the climate. So you can call that a blue wash, um, right? The oceans are um, another another thing that's not being spoken about in addition to carbon capture storage to keep all the oil flowing and um, keep all the 
the industrial machine running. Another thing that's not being spoken about in addition to that in nuclear, which is going to be um, huge, is deep sea mining. And I know we mentioned it here and there, but I mean, the idea to do this under the guise of climate, when the ocean stores so much carbon, so much carbon is stored in the ocean and every other breath we take is from the plankton in the ocean. So the idea that we're going to, that this is all about the climate, when they're preparing to mine the oceans, tells, every, tells you that this is complete, um, utter nonsense. This is about keeping the capitalist system, about restructuring it to save it, to keep the current power structures intact, to keep the ruling class intact. And so there's a lot of, um, you really don't have to be um, an academic or a rocket science to figure this out. There's stuff like that all over the place, right? right. That, that's well. Um, also, I should just note that 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 in Norway, uh, this government just signed a huge, unprecedented defense agreement with the United States. I mentioned this last time. They are building a submarine base, a naval base, and a couple military bases all in the far north of Norway, the pristine Arctic, um, uh, you know, landscape that that Norwegians profess to care so much about um, will now be destroyed. And but it but it passed under the radar. I mean, there was no media coverage of this whatsoever. I mean, literally um, a few people got together and, and organized a petition, but but it it bare, you know, it made barely a ripple uh, in in. Um, across the public so uh yeah it, their contradictions are are endless um so uh i think it's it would be interesting to get everyone's take also on on um on more the 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 not just the vaccines, but the 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 uh, the idea of vaccine passports and the implications for this, um, and and what I mean, because it, to me it's extraordinary. Personally, the travel restrictions um, just strike me as extraordinary. Two years ago, I could just go buy a ticket and go anywhere I wanted, and now I literally cannot leave this country, and. Um, uh, and, and I'm surprised that people have been so um, passive about this. Corey. Well, I just wanted to chime in on that, John. Um, the federal NDP party leader, Jagmeet Singh, um, this week or last, he is saying that he believes there can, there's a connection between the anti-mask and anti-lockdown protests and far-right extremism. So here we have now the framing, right? The anyone that's not for the oppressive lockdown measures, not for um, putting a mask over your face that will do more harm than good to, for your health is now on um, the enemy, right? Like the um, enemy is on our own soil here. It's your neighbor, your own family, whomever. So the framing is like um, terrorism now, you know? It's right. Right. Well, and it's also being linked up with, you know, a, a growing um, anti-Chinese rhetoric and anti-Russian rhetoric, which I suppose was was predictable. Um, but Omar, any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the first things we've got to remember is, and I have to remind myself this all the time because I get sucked in, is not to cede the ground to people who think, 
COVID is the overarching narrative and that it is the alpha, it is the omega and everything must be discussed relative to that. And so we are sometimes left, those of us who are trying to bring sanity uh, or data or just humanity back uh, into uh, this dialogue uh, as if we have to justify. I wrote a piece some time ago saying, who's the real skeptic? Suggesting that the, uh, the, the people who are in love with this narrative are actually the rationality skeptics. They are the humanity skeptics, they're the history skeptics, um, and they're anti-rational. Yeah. And or that they're the actual skeptics and uh, the piece suggested the covert beliefs they must hold in order to be comfortable yeah. with the prescriptions they're doling out. And it didn't, it made for very unpleasant reading for people saying, no, I don't believe that. And I said, no, but by implication, you must, maybe you're not a card carrying member of each of these uh, affiliations, but there must be elements of this that you say yes to. For example, that I'm allowed to tell you if your business is essential or not over a middling influenza strain. And if I get scared <laughs> enough, your life is mine until you appease me. And right. whereas nobody would state it that way in such graphic terms, that is by implication what is being said. And so that small group that can live on Netflix and Uber um, and pontificate, it's okay if the other third aren't locked up but are delivering your food, running your society, stocking your shelves. If you have children going into child weddings taking place because they aren't being educated and their economies aren't viable. If polio uh, vaccinations aren't taking place uh, to the tune, I mean, that is, uh, talk about collateral damage. So the suggestion that none of that matters, only one source of mortality matters, only one source of uh, disquiet matters, and that's COVID. I think right. we have reminding people that that is an anti-rational. That's the cult, and it's not a matter of right wing, left wing. It's just, it's just a matter. And this is, I was talking to Steve Dace soon after he came up with his book on Fauci, and he said, "Who would have thought?" Naomi Wolf and I agree. <laughs> No, I, you know, it's, the barriers. it's, um, it's extraordinary, but you know, this, I think this speaks to partly, uh, how effective, um, the media propaganda is, uh, in the contemporary world. And also how, you know, you mentioned infantilized, um, the culture has become that they identify with celebrity stories and, and these anecdotal um, confessional asides that, that people post and, and all the virtue signaling and, and um, these, these um, sort of uh, payons to, to, uh, to having been vaccinated, wearing your mask, people constantly posting selfies about all, because it, it, it's, it's life that is, has already reached a point where, you know, people, life led on screens. People, yeah. people live on the Internet. They, they look at life as if it's a movie. And, yeah. 
and that's the way the propaganda has has been uh, constructed and manufactured uh, so that it so that it resembles a movie. And uh, I, I wrote something a little while ago about those first photos that came out of Wuhan with dead bodies on the street and people in hazmat suits, photos that made no sense whatsoever, even at the time. Um, but but it was the first strike uh, to terrify people. I mean, it was right out of, you know, Soderbergh's contagion film. It was it was countless other, you know, apocalyptic uh, movies from Hollywood. Uh, and then it was quickly forgotten because, as I say, it made no sense, of course. Uh, and and that the people don't die in the street from COVID. But no matter that that became an indelible sort of symbol for um for this plague that that hit the planet and and people very enthusiastically wanted to to be seen to care about um their grandparents or whoever you know the target demographic was that week it shifted over time but uh it it's it's it is a it is an extraordinarily amnesiac society in the West now. They don't remember, um, you know, any of the historical precedents to to uh, other of other pandemics and and what happened. And that, you know, conclusions about the the Spanish flu um, in 1919. There were a bunch of articles written a few years later by doctors. Uh, saying that the masks were actually counterproductive, if you know, useless and perhaps counterproductive, but nobody remembers this and nobody wants to hear about it either. So um, it's peculiar. Okay, uh, Johan uh, Hiroyuki, anybody? Yeah, I can. Uh, you asked about the the digital IDs and all uh, this this uh, situation, and uh, in, in relation to what Corey said, I think that any. Any transition of the sort that's needed to to safeguard capitalism and the power structure in face of of the crises and the challenges I think lie ahead, it's going to be immensely disruptive and it will require this this rigorous control of information of resource flows and of human behavior. And all this must be at this level, which I think practically necessitates some form of digital identification, which is also associated with far-ranging data collection pertaining to everything from like purchases to physical movement. So, so I think that's where we are heading. And I, I think that's an important uh, goal of this entire process to get in place. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I really quickly want to point out again, and I'm always hammering away at this, um, is is there has been the creation of, of, of an, a near religious belief in the yeah. infallibility of uh, Already. of computation, cyber technology, the internet, and and yeah. you know data collection, all of this stuff, and yet it's remarkably uh, flawed. I I I had an experience this week with. Um, uh internal revenue i was trying to get in touch with and and they all i could get were you know computer voices i mentioned this last time because the forms i tried to fill out were not applicable to somebody living overseas simple things like that and you get locked out but this happens repeatedly 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 all the time and um it's it's 
it's I think even on the part of the people that that create this system, that dream of this system, a dream of the Great Reset, that they're as delusional as anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They're they're delusional about AI and and uh, and and the limitless possibilities of of you know techno progress. I think is is absolutely uh, fallacious anyway johan yeah i just uh, i think this connects with what you just said earlier because i mean we live immersed in this digital reality and and that's what we will defend that's what we will believe in and that's what we're going to trust and everything here is is basically corporate structures everything is branded and if we were living in a, in a forest or near a creek, that's what we would trust and that's what we would defend. But, but we're kind of digital denizens in a, in a basic sense. And that has a profound effect on our psyche and our belief systems. Um, um, yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, I, I was just going to say that on the one hand, something you said about the Wuhan, uh, you know, the, the hazmat suits and the... Right. Ray Bradbury type uh, <laughs> people collapsing on the streets. Well, not only are we amnesiac, but we trot out the same playbook. You mentioned India earlier. Some of the pictures that we saw in the New York Post about the um, the people on the, the woman uh, on the street um, when India started to hit um, our media, that actually happened a year back from uh, in from an explosion in Andhra Pradesh, it had nothing to do with COVID, right. but because right. it was a nice graphic scare picture. Uh, what does it matter? I mean, a nicely uh, draped woman in anguish will do. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean that was this has been true with all the coverage of India plays on a certain kind of xenophobia and, and Orientalism in the West, and and um, you know well, they, now WHO is yammering on about the Indian variant uh, because they need some new, um, you know, pathology, some new squint on this to terrorize us with, uh, <laughs> simply because all those other variants haven't uh, done their job very effectively. So now the WHO says 44 countries have seen the Indian variant. Uh, this must be like the Manchurian candidate of virus. Um, now the, the, other, the, the other thing, the WHO, which is, again, its role is fascinating to ponder. Um, you know, somebody said the World Hoax Organization, um, because it, along like Mr. Fauci, have flip-flopped on every emblematic belief. Up until 2020, uh, their public policy handbook was pretty decent, um, at least as published. I don't mean in action but at least the publication. Then this year, they tried to persuade us that the only immunity that existed was vaccine immunity, as if natural immunity was something dreamt up uh, because we all (laughs) came out of the cave with vaccines. There was Adam and Eve in a vaccine, which they didn't tell us in the old Genesis story. Uh, But the the fascinating thing about the WHO today is because ivermectin, Again, I'm talking, I'm back on the treatment kick for a moment. Um, India was using ivermectin and said was getting 
was fairly successful. Then they stopped and switched to vaccines. And one of the things we've seen with the vaccines is all the countries that have massive vaccination campaigns have at least temporary spikes in infections. We saw it with Israel, we saw it with the UK, we saw it with Gibraltar. We're seeing it with Seychelles, which is the most vaccinated nation, they say, in the world. The Maldives following suit. And the Indian provinces like Tamil Nadu and others, where they had the highest vaccinations, were also some of, not the only, because Delhi did because of bad respiratory health, but you saw some of the worst spikes. So in the last few days, Goa and other places in India have said, if you get tested positive, we're giving you iver ivermectin. We're giving you a bunch of this treatment just to help you along. So WHO today says, we discourage use of ivermectin because the clinical trials are inconclusive. It is one of the most used drugs by WHO, though it is used for, uh, as a uh, treatment, uh, parasitic treatment. And they say, but so it's already been approved. So it's just another line extension. It's an off-label use, which happens all the time in medicine. So they're saying they can't recommend it because the trials are inconclusive. But you've been, we've been using it for decades. It's been demonstrated. And funny enough, even the Weather Channel carried a report about a recent U.S. peer-reviewed pro-ivermectin done by Dr. Pierre Corey uh, and uh, his colleagues. It was even carried on the Weather Channel, so you know it must be true. Because <laughs> they never get anything wrong. Well, but the coverage of India, you know, has been extraordinarily lurid and and mm. um, uh, plays on all the, you know, the still durable Western fears of uh, of of the Orient. And, uh, you know, people on on funeral pyres burning bodies and which is something that happens every day in india but yeah. you know never mind um it, it to the average westerner it seems like um a scene from um hieronymus bosch and in fact a lot of the the framing of of the photographs resembles hieronymus bosch um cory yeah i just wanted to talk for a moment about something i don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast i i came across in April when basically um, if you guys can remember, it was when Greta gave money to um, the COVAX. Um, some, to, you know, that uh, God, I forget what's in COVAX, but anyway, it's Gates and some other. So basically she donated, I think it was a hundred thousand um, dollars to the who in support of COVAX. And at that time, like I looked at that and I, I, I don't know, I retweeted it was something, but for a couple of days that didn't really sit well in my head. And I went back and I looked at that again and I was like, what is it about this? Something's not right. And then I realized, I was like, who foundation, who foundation? And then I realized in my mind, I was thinking of the UN foundation, which I'm really familiar with. And then I was like, who is the who foundation? I don't recall it right in my head. And so then I went to the website, I actually first I went to the Twitter account that the who had linked to, and then it had hardly any followers and it had hardly anyone it was following. And I was like, what? It was just created last year. And so I realized the who foundation is a brand new creation. And it actually, um, when I started digging into that, it's not part of the who it operates alongside the who. 
And then the CEO of the WHO Foundation is on the, he, he's from Beatrice, which is a global pharmaceutical corporation. And so um, right before he came over, I think January 1st of this year to this new WHO Foundation, um, um, what happened, oh, Pfizer, who has this um, spinoff called Upjohn, it created a merger um, with Mylan, um, which is another pharmaceutical corporation to form a new um, giant, a pharma giant called Beatrice. Right. And so this is all going again back to this massive new, um, you know, pharmaceuticals again as emerging markets. And then um, this new CEO is a senior advisor or was a senior advisor previously to the Gates Foundation. Right. And yeah. he's from from McKinsey as well. So, again, it all ties back into the pharmaceutical and then this foundation serves as a platform for new public private investment. And that's through. SDGs, which again, I keep saying this to people, they have to be understood and recognized as emerging markets. Okay, like they're called global goals. It's under the guise poverty, environment, all these things that sound wonderful. What they are is emerging markets, right? Going forward in this new on restructuring of global capitalism. So I just wanted to touch upon the importance of that foundation and how it all ties into everything going forward. Mm -hmm. And then as well, um, when you were talking about, and I did see that photo Omar mentioned of the woman dying on the street that was actually from the gas explosion last year. I've seen yeah. that, but it, it feels to me like um, um, Omali Ashitala actually calls this the colonial virus, right? Like it's the white man's virus. And, it, yeah. and this seems me like a brand right like a like a brand is a lifestyle and to me it seems like the western society is grabbing onto this as though it's a new brand and it's an extension of of um white saviorship basically right look at me Boy, absolutely mom. yeah right so i just wanted to throw that in no i i think that that's um uh absolutely true and and this is something that that is uh, has intensified and, and increased a great deal over the last six months, three months, maybe, um, is the colonial aspect and the white saviorism, the white paternalism to the developing world. Uh, and, and of course, domestically in the United States, um, the black inner city is the, is, is the colonial, uh, is the third America's third world and is being treated as such. Uh, so, so that, that, uh, you see the, the building of, uh, you know, these tiny houses, these little homeless encampments that are lit 24 hours a day by arc lights surveilled 24 hours a day in which there's a very early curfew, no alcohol, cigarettes, all these things, um, as if anybody would voluntarily want to, you know, give me a tent under the overpass any day um but but this portends this is this is a future vision you know and it's being passed off as um compassionate caring uh, and and uh selfless we will build these internment camps because that's what they look like um for the homeless for the poor uh that are increasing you know increasing in numbers daily uh, and it it shows our our both white superiority and and our benevolence. Uh, Johan, 
Yeah, thanks, Corey. That was that was great, uh, and I, I think this ties into what you said, asked John earlier about the the master narrative. Who believes it? Is it doomed to, to fail, and so on? And I mean, it's it's obviously the the comfortable, educated classes who believe the the master narrative most fervently, and and according to certain theorists who, who kind of uh, sketchily interpret this Pareto uh, Italian economist. We don't need much more than 20% of, of uh, strong uh, socially uh, influential uh, believers in, in a theory to, to, for it to gain ground. Uh, anyway, the, the over-socialized, so to speak, educated classes, they're particularly susceptible to propaganda because they always much more strongly identify with the system and they're never gonna rebel against the core values of the power elite. And these over-socialized groups also have all the clout and all the financial resources. And, and how, how do you how do you break that kind of spell, really? Right. John? <clears throat> yeah. Um, two things that was were sparked by uh, listening um, here. One, and this is an interesting dichotomy. Uh, one is that on the, you know, if you look at the raw numbers, this has never been a global pandemic, in my view. Hmm. Um, I mean, if you take a look at the fact that 3 million people over a period that 80 million people pass from all-cause mortality, uh, it is, you know, so and those 3 million are probably not all COVID deaths. I mean, if you get into the with COVID, from COVID, hmm. um, death certificate, whatever. But even if you get all of them were, over that same period, 80 million people overall passed. It's it's not it's not a horrifying percentage. If you looked at Asia itself, Asia is about 60% of the world's population and had about 16% of the ascribed COVID deaths. Um, whereas 60 more than 60% of the ascribed COVID deaths come from Europe and the U.S. Uh, and South America. Uh, well, well, one place in South America, but they're more heavily concentrated uh, in the US uh, and Europe. And so I always thought it was interesting that it was certainly a serious virus to some extent, but not unprecedented, not anything worth pausing or paralyzing the planet. But even the word pandemic, you could take issue, but because it was a pandemic from a US European perspective, hmm. Uh, yeah. Of course, it had to be um, the be-all and the end-all. Uh, the second thing I would say is, on the other hand, places like Thailand, who are who have not been known to panic, who you know have uh, had people come in for all kinds of um, both spiritual, uh, sybaritic, and licentious pleasures, <laughs> who have uh, traded in sex tourism as well as uh, various other things are so terrible and, and, and had some equanimity who handled various other situations, including tsunamis. I remember my wife and I were just landing uh, in Bangkok as uh, the tsunami uh, hit. Wow. Uh, and um, it, it was remarkable to see the reaction, but they are so petrified of COVID that if you have five people test positive, they're willing to sacrifice their tourism, their way of life. So somehow we have on the one hand, 
there's been very little of a pandemic there. And on the other hand, our Western media, which they follow, our iconography, uh, our command of uh, the global tech and celebrity narrative, uh, we, they go along so that if we're terrified, they join in. And that's yeah. worrying. That's really worrying. Well, that's the shape of the uh, imperialism manifesting itself um, totally. Uh, it, it's sort of like that in Japan, too. People are asking for vaccine because the government is not really actively pushing. And, and uh, uh, there was an advertisement in, in uh, a magazine recently uh, that uh, demanded uh, uh, vaccine uh, and accusing the government uh, for killing people. Uh, by not uh, being active about that. So there's a momentum of um, imperial structure, uh, especially among the, uh, 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 the self-claimed leftists, they are uh, demanding vaccine. They are criticizing their government. And uh, so they know that the ultimate um, authority is not the Japanese government, it's yeah. the empire. It's the U.S. government and uh, its allies. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting that that um, um, the the colonial echoes, and it's something I've thought about this week actually, because I think it's becoming more prevalent in 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 the way the, this this whole event um, is being presented. Yeah, Corey. Well, just on what Hiroyuki was saying about people demanding, it's the same strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, strategy used by purpose um, slash of us for share verified um, the, the Greta climate strikes. It's the new power strategy where you harness on the people to get what you want. So you don't have to force, um, you know, it's sort of like brave, brave new world versus 1984 Huxley versus um, Orwell. You don't have to force the populace, the vaccinations on them. You can get, them to demand the vaccinations, right? right? Through, through your branding and strategy and your nonprofit industrial complex army in tandem with the media. So you have, you know, you turn it around, you, you get the populace to demand the solutions that you have waiting right there, you know, that you, that you spent, you know, decade, you know, decade or more um, putting this scenario together, you get them to demand the very strategy that you have ready to go. You know, well, so. the left, I've read a lot of the left referring to uh, the new health imperialism, uh, meaning they're hoarding the vaccine mm-hmm. and not getting it to the third world. Um, it's yeah, it's a, framing. It's, a, it's all, yeah. all framing. This is this is like counterpunch and Jeff St. Clair and those people. Um, uh, pushed that idea uh yeah Corey. oh nothing no, I, no, you're not <laughs> i can't read the hand no but i mean it's brilliant right you, you get the people to demand what you want to give them right you turn you turn it around and that's all with the campaigns and the language and the framing it's all so important in that whole idea of vaccine equity that is what that is for that is what that does yeah, like the words, the equity when it comes to clean water and sanitation that that's been, you know, um, decades and decades and decades, there's still no clean water and sanitation for 3 billion people. Where's the equity for that? Nowhere. Right. Mm. 
Right. John? Yeah. I was just to build on what Corey was just saying. Um, see, it's back to what I was saying about when it hits close to home, when it can terrify us, then everybody else's suffering is fodder and we can magnify it. So the Indians right now are providing uh, a nice little uh, demo for us. But the fact that every two minutes a child dies in India from diarrhea or tuberculosis, that's, been, that's every day, every two minutes. Why has that not been a crisis? Why has, where are the headlines about that? Where's the outrage? Where are all these highly strung liberal consciences uh, on that front? But you see, there's no real posing there. That's just, that's the inconvenient truth. Right. <laughs> so, no, and I mean, there's, there's countless examples of that, of course. I mean, <clears throat> you know, food insecurity um, in the United States is at all-time high, even before the pandemic was at an all-time high, uh, numbers of children that went to bed hungry. Uh, it was never, never in media. I mean, it's still not in media. Um, it's it's not an issue. No, this has been a campaign to identify with this pandemic, a kind of manufactured um, artificial emergency. And it has allowed for the implementation of all you know these emergency acts and draconian uh, uh, restrictions and erosions of due process and civil liberties and all the rest uh, and and has caused just an extraordinary amount of of suffering access to regular health care and it has affected disproportionately predictably the very poor um and and yet uh you know that that doesn't register somehow i mean propaganda works propaganda is very very effective and uh this this is a has been a model of propaganda there's no question um Okay, anyone here? Omar, Corey? I have a, another question for Omar. Yeah. Yeah, if, if nobody else had any. Yeah. I just yeah. wondered how, how, how does the climate change activism in Sri Lanka look like? What, what's, the, what's the situation with regard to that? Um, Johan, you're a trove of uh, great questions. Um, <laughs> and... Um, you know, what's interesting is that I, I personally believe that the really worrying thing about what we've lived through is it's a playbook. And I think it's been that's been hinted at in our discussion. So when the next ism comes along or the next thing that somebody has an agenda for, even if it's fact free or detached, out comes the playbook. You know, go lock up, go huddle, go listen to your master, go into detention camp, go follow the orthodoxy. Thou shalt not question, do not be a denier, climate denier, vaccine denier, COVID denier. I think here in Sri Lanka, um, it's, uh, that's not the current concern. I think the concern is that the intemperate curfews have thrown them into the worst economic crisis uh, since independence. And there are people here who literally do not understand uh, I mean, they would just forget this tomorrow. I mean, they'd be like, bring it on because I've got a family to feed. It's that visceral. And 
But of course they can't say it because you're not allowed to because you want to murder granny and you want to murder the whole planet. Um, <laughs> if you dare have the effrontery to want to make a living, um, you know, or, or decide what risks you want to take uh, or trust your immune system. So the, the answer is, I think this would be a next stage agitation yeah. here in Sri Lanka. Uh, right now, uh, the activism is, is more about getting the various communities, the, the Tamil community who uh, was part of the civil war, uh, the Muslim community who uh, was ostensibly to blame for the Easter bombing, uh, the Christians and the Buddhists, to return to the harmony that they have enjoyed for a large part of Sri Lanka's history. Mm. And so I think um, that's, that's the challenge right now under, under great economic duress. I mean, today is Eid in much of the Muslim world, uh, but because of uh, what they've done, that's annulled. Visak is coming up at the end of this month, that's annulled. And um, we've seen this over and over. I mean, how many Easter's and Christmases and uh, everything else. So I think Sri Lanka will get there probably, but probably uh, right now the wolf is a little too close to the door uh, for the climate exigencies. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think we're kind of about to wrap up here, guys. So if anybody has um, any final thought, this has been terrific. And Omar, I hope you'll come do another one with us because uh, I feel like, like I'll be happy to join you. It's been, it's been edifying for me too. Yeah. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Um, uh, uh, I will just conclude by saying that, that what has been normalized is has nothing to do with medicine uh you you know in norway they just changed it you could only have meetings of five people uh then it was changed to 10 and so like my chess club opened i could go play chess what what you know as if that had any rational bearing on viral transmission i mean it's just preposterous it is it, these various exercises and obedience and training people to to adhere to the, you know this new cultic kind of the new superstition um it's it's but it's been normalized and it's been internalized and, and people, you know, people want vax parties now and stuff. Uh, it, it is part of the, it is part of the culture. It's, it's, it's found traction and uh, has been incorporated into the vocabulary and grammar of, of, you know, the, the, the cultural discourse. And, and uh, once that happens uh, it's, 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 you know, dissent becomes ever more difficult. Yeah. Uh, it becomes harder for those people to hear what you're saying. And it was hard enough to begin with. So um, I want to thank everybody. Any last thoughts? John, all, all I was going to say is one, thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you. Everybody it was uh, great fun. Would love to be back. And if, if there was just a parting uh, plea is that, the, and I will send a link to this thing when it comes out. It opened my eyes to remind people, not only is this a, a disease most people recover from, mm. but when Dr. McCullough said, don't forget, it's also treatable. Mm. Most people <laughs> think 
even if you're a minority that get it, there's nothing to be done, then you just hope for the best with your immune system. No, it's treatable. It's actively treatable. It's preventively treatable. And in many cases, even off a ventilator, if you get there early enough, we've seen it can be helped. So right. to me, that opened my eyes. Hey, not only is it not a big deal, but it's treatable. Why do we never hear about that? Anyway. Yeah. No, that's a good place to end. It's a great point. And um, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Omar. And yes, you're invited back. And uh, it, is, it has been terrific. And as soon as that article is out, uh, I will post it with, um, with the link to this podcast uh, over at Aesthetic Resistance. So Hiroyuki, thank you, Johan, Corey, um, and Omar. Uh, and I will send all of you guys the link to this podcast when it's up, which should be soon. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.